the life of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Meccan period, by Imam Anwar al-Awlaqi. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا النجاشي the Negus refused to hand over the Muslims to the delegation of Quraysh and as soon as both the Muslims and the delegation of Quraysh left Amr ibn al-As threatened that I'm going to make a comeback وأستأصل خضراءهم and I'm going to bring an end to the Muslims Abdullah bin Rabi'ah for his partner let's say his partner says there's a difference on the name his partner said no don't do that they are still our relatives I mean you don't have to go that far fine he refused to hand them over let's just go back Amr ibn said no tomorrow I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell the king that they say that Jesus is a slave he did go the next day and he said they say some bad things about Jesus. They claim that he's a slave and he's not the son of God. Amr ibn al does not believe in all of this stuff anyway, but it's just to cause fitna. So Najashi obviously was quite concerned. And Najashi is a religious person. And he doesn't want any heretics in his land. So he recalled the Muslims again. Umm Salama says there was nothing that worried us more than that event. It caused us great concern. Same thing, we decided that we're going to speak the truth. We're going to say what our Prophet has taught us. We're going to say the truth no matter what happens. We're going to speak the truth. Same thing, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib was to be their spokesman. And they went and Najashi Ask them, what do you say about Isa? He said, we say that he's the messenger of Allah. Actually, he first said that he's Abdullah. He said he's the servant of Allah. He's the slave of Allah. He is the messenger of Allah. He is the word of Allah. Casted on Maryam, Mary, the chaste and virgin. The Negus said, there is no difference between what you say about him and what we or what I say about him and immediately the uh, the priests or the bishops started he was hearing a commotion their sounds they were angry to hear this response from a Najashi how can he approve such a thing even though it was all the same with the exception of being the servant of Allah but they said he's the spirit of Allah uh, that was blown into Maryam the word of Allah that Mary was the chaste and virgin. It's all the same with except of this difference, which is not a minor difference, it's a critical difference, on whether Isa, Jesus, is the son of Allah or not. Now, the Christians of Abyssinia would have been Orthodox Christians who believed in the divinity of Jesus. So the priest doesn't, didn't like what they heard. And Najashi stood and said, say whatever you want to say, these people are going to be free in my land. A decisive decision was made that these people are going to get my protection. And Umm Salama says that Amr ibn al and his partner were left with disgrace because Al-Najashi drove them out and even gave them back their gifts. Because in the first visit of Amr ibn al 
the first thing that Najashi asked Amr ibn As is, what did you bring me from your land? Amr ibn As said, I have brought you some leather products. And that was the best thing that the Najashi used to like, leather products. So he had this friendship relationship between him and Amr ibn As. But when it came to principles, and Najashi uh, stood with the truth, and he refused to hand over a sahaba radiallahu anhu. So that's the story of Al-Hijrah to Abyssinia. Let's get on to some uh, lessons. Uh, number one, what were the reasons of this Hijrah? How come the Muslims fled their land and went to Abyssinia? I mean, how, would, how come they would leave the best place on the face of the earth, Mecca, and go somewhere else? Well, the first reason is to flee persecution. They were being tortured in Mecca. So Rasulullah allowed them to leave, to flee from this persecution, so that they would free themselves from this physical pain. That's the first reason. Uh, Ibn Hazm, he says, when the number of Muslims increased and the persecution increased, Allah allowed them to migrate. Second reason is to safeguard their faith. Not everyone will be able to handle the torturing. Some people would give up their iman. Not everyone has the strength of Bilal. Not everyone can resist what Khabbab ibn Arat went through. So if a person fears on the safety of their religion, they should go somewhere else. And Rasulullah says, لا يذل المؤمن نفسه The believers should not humiliate themselves. By facing harm which he is not able to handle. So if it is too much for a person to handle, then they should not put themselves in that difficult situation. Uh, to give you an example of what this concept means, there was once a man who came to Rasulullah with a size of an egg, pure gold. And he gave it to Rasulullah and said, This is sadaqah. And it is all what I have. Rasulullah was upset and said, One of you would come and give up all of their wealth. And then after that they would come and ask me for assistance. So Rasulullah did not want this person to give up all of his money and then ask for help. Now keep your money, give what you're able to give, but keep some for yourself. Why do you come and say this is all what I have? But then we know that Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu at one point of time has given up all of his wealth to Rasulullah and Rasulullah praised that. How come the response of the Messenger of Allah was different? Rasulullah knew in the situation of Abu Bakr that he can handle the situation. He can give up all of his wealth and he would not get down to the level of begging. He will be able to take care of himself. However, not everyone is like Abu Bakr. So for other people, they shouldn't put themselves in that difficult situation that they're not able to handle. You give up everything in that moment of high emotions, but after that when things calm down, you start rethinking and saying, Oh, what have I done? I've given up all of my money, what can I do now? So not everybody will be able to handle what is going on in Mecca, therefore Rasulullah told them to leave and safeguard your religion. Ibn Ishaq says, 
the Muslims then left towards Abyssinia fearing for their faith. Number three, we have a quote here by Sayyid Qutb. He says, before I read this quote, what is your impression of the people who went to Abyssinia? Were they the strong and noble among Quraysh or were they the weak? They belong to the strong and, and wealthy families of Quraysh. And Sayyid Qutb states, it would not be correct to say that they had gone there for reasons of personal safety alone. For they included some of the most powerful and wealthiest of the Prophet's followers and of his fellow tribesmen. The majority of them were from the tribe of Quraysh, including Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, and a number of young men who were accustomed to providing protection to the Prophet ﷺ, such as Zubair ibn Awam, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, Abu Salam al-Makhzumi, Uthman ibn Affan, to mention a few. There were women belonging to some of the most prominent families of Quraysh, such as Umm Habiba, daughter of Abu Sufyan, the Quraysh's unrivaled non-Muslim leader, who would have never been persecuted in Mecca. Umm Habiba would never have been persecuted in Mecca. No one would, would be able to touch her. She's the daughter of Abu Sufyan, the leader of Quraysh. There were, no doubt, other reasons for the Muslims' immigration to Abyssinia. There was the need to shake the religious and social foundations of Quraysh's most noble and powerful families. There could be no greater insult or threat to the Quraysh dynasties that seeing their proudest and most noble sons and daughters running away for conscientious and religious reasons, leaving their cultural heritage and tribal homeland behind. So, the ones who made hijrah, belonging to the wealthy and strong families of Quraysh, having them leave, according to the view of Sayyid Qutb is to cause an embarrassment and to shake the structure of Quraysh. And Quraysh's position in Arabia wasn't because of the strength of its army. Quraysh were small in number. Nevertheless, no one dared to attack them. And they used to be held in very high esteem. They had this deep respect in the hearts of everyone around them. And that was because of the values that they had. It was also because of their location next to the house of Allah and the fact that they are the guardians of Al-Kaaba. So for the people to see that the noblest among their men and women had to leave Mecca to flee for the safety of their religion was such an embarrassment for the people of Quraysh and to shake their foundations in Arabia. According to another author, Munir al-Ghadban, his view is that Rasulullah wanted to have a secondary base outside of Mecca, so that if something happens in Mecca, at least the religion can survive somewhere else. And now since the number increased, the Muslims could spare dividing into two groups. One group stays in Mecca, one group would leave and stay in Abyssinia. And what would strengthen this view is the fact that the Muslims in Abyssinia never went back to meet the Prophet ﷺ when he was in Medina until the seventh year of Hijrah. They waited seven years after Rasulullah made Hijrah to travel back to Medina. And they weren't enjoying their stay. They wanted to be close to Rasulullah But they stayed there until they got the permission from Rasulullah to come. And Rasulullah gave them this permission when it was 
safe for them to come back. Now Islam is firmly established. Because in the first few years in Medina, Medina was under constant threat. And the Muslims never really had safety. Just because they had the state didn't mean that they were secure. They were always under threat from an attack from one direction or another. But after seven years, Islam was now had its roots deep. It was firmly established. It was strong. That's when the Sahaba came back from Abyssinia. Now, uh, brothers and sisters, I'm spending more time than usual on this story of Al-Hijrah. Usually in books of Sirah, they would just glance over the whole thing in a few pages and that's it. But we're spending a lot of time on this. We've already spent some time on the early session and we'll spend some time this session. Because of the importance of Al-Hijrah to Al-Habasha in our situation. This was a Muslim minority living among a Muslim majority. It was a predominantly Christian country. So there are some resemblances there. But when it comes to An-Najashi, we don't have any personality similar to him in the West. A deeply religious leader with justice. We haven't had anything like that. Maybe at one moment of time, laws and constitutions of the West were somewhat close to the personality of An-Najashi. But that has pretty much changed now. But I still think that this is an important subject and we need to talk about it. Now, unfortunately, there is not a lot of narrations that survived dealing with Al-Habasha in particular and dealing with the Mecca era in general. If you open any book of Sirah, you would find that, for example, this book in front of me, as an example. The book is around 700 pages, and the Mecca era is 150. So 150 pages are dealing with 13 years of the life of Rasulullah and everything before that. And then you have almost 600 pages dealing with the last 10 years of the life of Rasulullah. So you can see the disproportion here. There's a few reasons for that. Number one, the documentation of hadith was not allowed until the Muslims were in Medina. In Mecca, Rasulullah did not allow them to write down hadith because he didn't want it to mix with Quran and cause confusions. Let's first concentrate on Quran and then after that you can document the hadith. That's one reason. Second reason is our early scholars weren't very interested in Mecca compared to their interest in Medina. Why? Because all of the laws and issues relating to the Islamic State were learned in Medina. Mecca didn't really relate much to our early scholars because they were living under Khilafah and they were concerned with the Islamic law the Islamic State, the institutions of the Muslim society, and all of that is to be learned from the ten years of Medina, not Mecca. So that's why you would find that the writings on Mecca, on Medina, are detailed and elaborate, while there's not much written about Mecca. Now I think we need to give more focus to the 13 years that Rasulullah spent in Mecca, because there's a significant 
percentage of the Muslims around the world living as minorities. You have a hundred million plus living as a minority in India. Sixty million Muslim minority in China. Millions of Muslims living in Russia. Millions of Muslims living in Western Europe, in Northern America, in South America. There's a lot of fiqh that is needed for these Muslim minorities and that is to be learned from the years of Mecca. So we need more study to be done on the narrations that survived from Mecca. How come Rasulullah chose Abyssinia to start with? Why not Syria? Why not Iraq? Why not uh, Egypt? How come Abyssinia? Why not the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire? There, there could have been many other choices. How come Rasulullah chose Al-Habasha? Well, the number one reason which is stated in the Hadith is the saying of Rasulullah فَإِنَّ بِهَا مَلِكَ لَا يُظْلَمُ عِنْدَهُ أَحَدٍ Go to Abyssinia because therein is a king who does not oppress anyone. Justice was the primary reason for the Muslims going to Al-Habasha. They were in search of justice. Because they were fleeing persecution, so they needed to go to a place where they will get justice. And that was Abyssinia. Second reason, which is a secondary reason, is the fact that the Arabs were familiar with Al-Habasha. Number one, Quraysh used to have business with Abyssinia. That was one of the areas that they would do business with in winter. The people of Quraysh had two journeys, one in summer and one in winter. The one in winter used to go, one branch of it would go to Al-Habasha, Abyssinia. So they already had an established commercial relationship. Number two, Rasulullah very early on was exposed to Abyssinian culture. His first nurse was from Al-Habasha, Umm Ayman who took care of Rasulullah and breastfed him. She was from Al-Habasha. According to Sahih Muslim, she was from Abyssinia. And Umm Ayman wasn't uh, just Abyssinian, but her culture, her language was Abyssinian. In one narration it states that she presented Rasulullah with this food. So Rasulullah said, what is this? She said, this is a dish that we make in Abyssinia. And I wanted you to try it. So she was even cooking some Abyssinian dishes in Arabia. Her accent, she couldn't get rid of her Abyssinian accent. For example, when she, according to Ibn Sa'd, when she would say, Salamullahi alaykum, she means peace of Allah be upon you, she would say, Salamullah alaykum, which means no peace on you. So Rasulullah would tell her, just say salam. Don't go beyond that. Just say salam. Or in the battle of Hunayn, she was making dua for the Muslims. She wanted to say, Thabbat Allahu Aqdamakum. She said, Thabbat Allahu Aqdamakum. Thabbat Allahu Aqdamakum means, may Allah make her feet firm. But rather than saying uh, firm, she was saying Sabt, which means Saturday. Which means the whole sentence doesn't mean anything. Rasulullah told her, Uskuti fa lisan. Stay quiet because you have a difficult tongue. So she wasn't even able to get rid of her accent. And this was a person very close to Rasulullah And Rasulullah remained close to her for all of his life. And he married her to his adopted son, Zaid bin Haritha. 
So that was the familiarity of Rasulullah with Al-Habasha which started very early on. And number three, because the Abyssinians were Christian. And the Muslims used to see the Christians the closest to them. When you compare them to the idol worshippers of Quraysh or the Magians and Majusiyah of Persia, the Christians were the closest. Now, what was the language of communication between Jafar and Najashi? The Nagas. Probably it was Arabic. There are some narrations state that the Nagas lived for a few years in Hijaz. And that he spoke Arabic. And even if he didn't live in Arabia, because of this established commercial ties between the Arabs and the Abyssinians, it is possible that the Abyssinians spoke Arabic or knew Arabic. And this would make more sense because we would find it difficult to, for example, understand how the Negus would weep when he hears Qur'an if it was translated through an interpreter. Now when the Negus we cried and we would suspect that he was understanding the meanings of the ayat in the original language for it to have that effect on him. Did the Negus become Muslim? He definitely did. Even though according to Ibn Taymiyyah he was not capable of applying any of the laws of Islam. Ibn Taymiyyah says for a fact and Najashi did not rule according to Quran. Ibn Taymiyyah says that the authentic opinion is that he did not even pray. He did not make hijrah, which is mandatory at the time. So he did not practice Islam, but he believed in the oneness of Allah. And he did what was possible for him to do for somebody in his position. And Ibn Taymiyyah also brought in over here the story of Sayyidina Yusuf salam. He said Yusuf salam, even though he was a Nabi of Allah, but he wasn't able to apply all of the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on a non-Muslim population. And actually Ibn Taymiyyah has a very interesting essay on this. I didn't have time to translate it, but it's quite fascinating on, on his views regarding this issue of a Muslim ruling over non-Muslims or somebody in the situation of a Najashi. What are their excuses in not applying the laws of Sharia? We're not going to get into that. But definitely he did become a Muslim and he was being taught Islam by Ja'far ibn Abi Talib and he might had some secret sessions with Ja'far ibn Abi Talib to study Islam because the Islam of a Najashi was not made public. So when and Najashi passed away in Al-Bukhari Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says قَدْ تُوفِيَ الْيَوْمْ رَجُلٌ صَالِحٌ مِنَ الْحَبَشَةِ فَهَلُمَّ نُصَلِّ عَلَيْهِ On this day a righteous man died in Abyssinia so let's pray on him let's make Salat al-Janazah on him and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam knew the exact day when and Najashi died he knew it on the same day which means that Jibreel السلام, came to Muhammad السلام, to inform him about that event. So it was an important event that Jibreel had to come and convey to Rasulullah and the Messenger of Allah, Al-Mustafa, led Salah on Al-Najashi. He prayed for him. And another hadith, Rasulullah said, Istaghfiru li'akhikum. Ask Allah to forgive him. He was asking the Sahaba to make dua for Al-Najashi.
Some lessons to learn from the uh, narrations. Number one, which really stands out, and that is the firmness and steadfastness of the Sahaba radiallahu anhu. They held tight to their principles. They did not compromise. Even when they knew they would be in danger. They went to an Najashi and said, Isa is the servant of Allah. And in their earlier discussion they said, we're going to speak the truth no matter what happens. So it's important to have that spirit. That we are not here to protect ourselves, but we are here to protect our religion. Our religion comes first. Even if we have to give up our lives in the process. And we would go through whatever pain and suffering we have to, to safeguard Islam. So that's the first lesson. Second lesson, they would not give in to the local traditions that would contradict Islam. They would adopt local traditions and culture that does not contradict with the religion. But whenever they see a contradiction, they are willing to stand against it. It was the tradition of the Abyssinians to make sujood whenever they would come to greet the Nagas. And Amr ibn al-As, when he went to al-Najashi, he said, Beware, when these people come in, they're not going to make sujood for you. And when they came in, truly, they did not, as Amr ibn al-As uh, suspected, they did not make sujood. And najashi was angry, and he said, How come you don't make sujood to me like everybody else does? They said, we do not make sujood to anyone but Allah. In our religion, we don't make sujood for anyone but Allah. And they had pride, even though they were in a foreign land, uh, living through difficult situations, but you can see that they had pride in their religion. Number three. When we say that the Muslims in Mecca had a jama'ah and an amir, Someone who wants to argue against this concept can come back and say, well, obviously they had the jama'ah and amir. Rasulullah was there. What do you expect? Well, what about in Abyssinia? Were the Muslims living like we are today, loose, and everybody is doing their own thing and going in their own direction? Or were they organized under one banner and a common leadership? This is one thing that stands out in all of the narrations. That the Muslims were organized. They were a group. And they worked together in a jama'ah. And they had a leader, Ja'far bin Abi Talib. He was their spokesman, he was their amir. So this is not an optional thing, it's not uh, something that if you like it, you'll do it. Muslims, wherever they are, they have to be in an organized fashion. This is an organized religion. It's not an individual spiritual thing that you do on your own. It is a religion that has many of its ibadah done collectively to teach us the spirit of jama'ah. Salah is done collectively. Hajj is done collectively. So, Muslims living in the West, they have to organize. They have to come together in a movement. And they have to have a common leadership which they stand behind. The decision was made in Abyssinia that only one man will speak. And will not interfere or go against and contradict what he's saying. Number four, you can see the extent of the participation of Muslim women. And now I want you to contrast this and balance it with what I spoke about earlier on. 
when I was speaking about the role of the Muslim woman as a wife and a mother. You see, Islam is somewhere between the two extremes. In every matter, you have two extremes. Tarafani wa wasat. In Arabic it says, two extremes and a middle. Islam is the middle of everything. It's the middle way. Ummatan wasata. So for every situation you have two extremes. And the fiqh and the wisdom is to know where the exact middle is. Because you have a lot of points on a spectrum. But only one point, one dot, is the middle. So it's very easy to hit everything but the middle ground. But it's not easy to hit the exact target of middle ground. And that is where the fiqh and wisdom comes into play. It's very evident in the early Muslim history that the Muslim sister had a very important role to play. The first Muslim was a woman. The first shaheed in Islam was a woman. The first martyr was Sumayyah. You can see the participation of Muslim women in Hijrah to Abyssinia. Their participation in the Hijrah to Medina. Their participation in Jihad. Their participation in Jama'ah. Their participation in teaching and learning. So some of the artificial barriers that we have erected now did not exist in the time of Rasulullah I mean, among us today are people who are carrying it to the both extremes. One extreme is that men and women can mix and laugh and joke and, and without no barriers, hijab is optional. And then on the other extreme, even the voice of women is not allowed to be spoken in public. We might as well just have them live in a different planet. So these are two extremes. But we need to find the middle road. And I want to give you an example to show you the relationship that men and women had in the time of Rasulullah And this conversation is relevant to the immigration to Al-Habasha. When the Muslims came back to Medina in the seventh year of Hijrah, the wife of Jafar ibn Abi Talib, Asma bin Umais, she went to visit Hafsa, the daughter of Amr al-Khattab, who was the wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Asma bint Amais went to visit her. Amr al-Khattab came to visit his daughter. And he came in and saw this woman sitting in her room. He told her, who is this woman? She said, Hadi Asma bint Amais. This is Asma bint Amais. Amr al-Khattab said, Al-Habashiyah, is this the Abyssinian woman? Not that she is from Abyssinia, but... He was referring to the fact that she has been in Abyssinia for so long. Is this the Abyssinian woman? Al-Bahariya? Is this the woman who came from the sea? Because they had to cross the sea to get into Medina. Hafsa said yes. Umar al-Khattab told Asma, We made hijrah before you. Therefore we have more rights to Rasulullah than you do. Straight like that. He went to her and said, We made hijrah before you. Therefore, we are closer to Rasulullah than you, and we have more rights uh, to him than you do. Asma was quite angry by that statement, and she said, No, you're not closer to Rasulullah than us. You were with the Messenger of Allah. He was feeding the hungry among you, teaching the ignorant among you, while we were in a distant, despised land. 
We were in a faraway land and despised. We weren't very comfortable over there. We didn't like it. Being far away from Rasulullah We were feeling homesick to the Messenger of Allah. Not to Mecca, it was to the Messenger of Allah. We wanted to be with him. And then she said, I'm going to go and tell Rasulullah what you're saying now. And I'm not going to add anything to it or subtract anything. I'm going to say it as you said it. And she went to Rasulullah and said, this is what Umar told me. Rasulullah said, and what did you say? She said, and she repeated the same statement. Rasulullah said, no, Umar and his companions do not have more rights than you do to me. They're not closer to me than you. They have the rewards of one hijrah, and you have the rewards of two hijrah. You get double the reward that they do. Asma bint Umayyah said, when Rasulullah mentioned this hadith to me, the Sahaba who were in Abyssinia, Abu Muslim and Ash'ari and his friends would come to me in large groups, all trying to learn this hadith of Rasulullah from me. And she said, there was nothing better for them in the world than this hadith. This hadith was so valuable to them, it was worth the world and everything in it. So now here you see that, first of all, Amr al-Khattab is speaking to this woman. And they're having a conversation. And it was a straightforward conversation. And then Asma bin Tu'mais is teaching the Sahaba, Abu Musa al-Ashari and the other men about this hadith. So this was the nature of the relationship that existed. Obviously, if you look at all of the references we have that deal with the uh, relationship of men and women, you would find that there was a, an element of formality in their dealings. You wouldn't find any incidents where they would joke and laugh with each other. So they knew their limits. But in the same time, it wasn't that extreme, as we might see among some Muslims now. An example of the participation and the strength of the early Muslims would be Umm Habiba. And Umm Habiba, radiallahu anha, keep in mind the following factors and see how difficult it was on her. Number one, she's the daughter of the unrivaled leader of Mecca, Abu Sufyan. So for her to leave that comfortable life, wealth, nobility in her society and go and live as a foreigner in an alien land is not easy. So number one, she was the daughter of Abu Sufyan. Number two, she is living in a foreign land. Number three, which was disastrous. When her husband reached to Abyssinia, he apostated and became Christian. He was one of the Sahaba who made Hijrah. When he got there, he changed his mind. Now, Ubaidullah bin Jahsh, he went through different stages in his life. I mean, he kept on flipping back and forth before Islam, uh, changing his mind and going into different religions. So this was his personality. So when he got there to Al-Habasha, he just changed from being a Muslim to being a Christian. And the most influential person on a woman is her husband. And it was very difficult for Umm Habiba to deal with this situation. Her husband apostating and becoming Christian. Obviously after that they have to separate. Keep all of these factors in mind and see how strong she was. And how steadfast she was. And how she was able to hold firm on her religion. 
What is the uh, ruling on Hijrah? Migration is compulsory if a Muslim individual is unable to establish his basic Islamic practices in the land such as prayer, fasting and the Adhan. If a Muslim is unable to establish the essential practices of Islam, then they must find somewhere else. It is permissible if a Muslim is confronted with problems that make life difficult in that land, he is permitted to leave his land to another land of Islam seeking relief. Number three, it is forbidden if by leaving a Muslim neglects the Islamic duty in his land that no one can replace him in. If someone is playing a critical role and nobody can step in and take that role, then it is forbidden for a person to leave. What is the ruling on living among non-Muslims? And that is one topic that uh, Muslims in the West have been avoiding talking about. We shy away from certain topics because they're controversial. We don't want to deal with them. Uh, but eventually we'll be faced with real problems that will force us to deal with these issues. And we need to have frank discussions on such matters. We can't just throw them in the closet, brush them under the carpet and think that they will go away. When it comes to living in a non-Muslim land, it is the consensus of Muslim scholars that is not allowed. And the ahadith are very clear. I have nothing to do with a Muslim who lives among the ones who associate gods besides Allah. This is one hadith of many different narrations. The scholars gave exceptions. They said if a person is propagating the message of Islam and is practicing Islam freely, then that is an excuse for them to stay. They also gave temporary excuse for somebody who's doing business or seeking knowledge. But this is on a temporary basis. It is not to settle indefinitely. Therefore, it is not allowed for us to live in non-Muslim environments unless we are fulfilling our responsibilities of da'wah. Otherwise, we are accumulating sins. By default. So da'wah is not an optional thing for us, but it is something that justifies uh, a Muslim living in a non-Muslim society. And uh, by da'wah we need to uh, understand this in a comprehensive way. It doesn't mean that every single person needs to do the same thing. We mean da'wah in a comprehensive way. Anything that is serving the welfare of Islam anything that serves the propagation of the message would fall under da'wah. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're distributing leaflets to non-Muslims or you're giving speeches to them. These are two ways, but there are many others. Relief work is work of da'wah. Charitable work is work of da'wah. Teaching Muslims living in the West is a work of da'wah too. So we need to understand this concept of da'wah in a comprehensive way. Uthman ibn Mad'un was one of the muhajirin who were in Abyssinia. He came back to Mecca and uh, since he left he had to come in with some protection. So he sought protection or he was offered protection by Walid bin Mughira who was one of the elders of Mecca. Uthman ibn Mad'un, he entered into Mecca. He saw 
that everyone else, every other Muslim, is going through persecution except for himself. This didn't make him happy. He felt jealous. How come everyone else is going through this purification of their sins except myself? So he went to Al-Walid bin Mughira and told him, I don't need your protection, I'm giving it back to you. He said, why my son are you doing that? He said, I want the protection of Allah. I don't want your protection. He said, well, since I have given you protection publicly, you have to give it back publicly. So they went next to Al-Kaaba and Al-Walid bin Mughira said, Uthman bin Mad'un has given me back my protection. Uthman bin Mad'un said, yes. I did find Al-Walid bin Mughira to be a very trustworthy and honest man, but I want to be under the protection of Allah and Allah alone. Later on, he uh, was sitting in a gathering around one of the famous poets of Arabia, Lubayd. And Lubayd was reciting some of his poetry. And he said, كُلُّ شَيْءٍ بَاطِلٌ He said, everything, save God, is vanity. Everything is going to go away. Uthman said, yes, you are right. Now this was a gathering that has held a lot of people. And then he continued and said, وَكُلُّ نَعِيمٍ لَا مَحَالَةَ زَائِلٌ And all pleasures must fade. Uthman ibn Mad'un interrupted and said, that's wrong. The pleasures of paradise never fade away. Lubayd, being a respected, famous poet of Arabia, was kind of shocked. How could someone in the audience respond to me like that? So he said, O men of Quraysh, those who sat with you used to not be so insulted. When did this come about? So, when, when did this start happening among you? So one man in the audience, he said, don't worry about it. This is one of the fools who followed the religion of uh, Muhammad. Don't take it to heart. Asman bin Ma'dun responded and they had a fight. So the man stood up. And he punched Uthman ibn Madhan in his eye until the whole thing is black. Al-Walid ibn Mughira saw this and he came to Uthman and said, There was no need for your eye to go through that suffering. You were under my protection, why did you give it up? Uthman ibn Madhan said, No. He said, Not so. I swear the only problem is that my good eye is in need of what the other one suffered for God's sake. Actually, I am under the protection of one stronger and more capable than yourself, O Ibn Abd Shams. Al-Walid offered again and said, do you want to come back to my protection? He said, no, I want to be under the protection of Allah. And remember that some of these are hadith, some of them are from Sirah. We're trying to mix both, to learn from hadith and to learn from Sirah. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq did not make hijrah to Abyssinia. But he was suffering in Mecca, so he requested permission from Rasulullah to allow him to migrate. Rasulullah gave him permission. Abu Bakr left. He left Mecca and reached to Yemen, Bark al Ghamad, and then he met with Sayyid al Ahabish. Al Ahabish are a tribe that used to live close to Mecca. Ibn al he met with him. Ibn al told him, Abu Bakr, where are you heading towards? Abu Bakr said, my people have offended me, treated me badly, and forced me to leave. Ibn al-Dughanna said, such a person like you is an asset to his people. You are not a person to leave, and you are not the person to be driven out of your land. 
Why? He said, because you aid those in distress and you are kindly towards the needy. And then he said, go back, you are under my protection. And he took him to Mecca and he went in front of the people of Mecca and said, Abu Bakr is under my protection. How can you drive out such a person from your land? He's an asset for you. You drive out a person like Abu Bakr, he said, he's under my protection. The people of Quraysh, they came to Ibn al-Dughun and they said, well, we accept your protection, but we are not going to allow Abu Bakr to worship publicly. So please make sure that he doesn't. Ibn al-Dughan came to Abu Bakr and said, your people uh, don't want you to offend them, so don't worship publicly. Previously what Abu Bakr would do, is he would pray outside, in front of the people, and Aisha said, my father used to be a man with a very soft heart. And when he would recite the verses of Quran, he would cry. So you would have all of the kids and women and men attracted around Abu Bakr watching him. And this turned the people of Quraysh crazy. And they felt that this will be a fitna for their people, seeing this khushua and Abu Bakr. So Ibn Dughanna told Abu Bakr to worship privately, Abu Bakr agreed. For a while Abu Bakr was praying in the privacy of his home and then uh, he had an idea. He decided to make a musalla in the fana of Bayta. Fana is an open area of the house. Usually you would have, in some styles of Islamic architecture, you would have the house built in a uh, square and in the middle it is empty. So that would be fana. Or fana could mean like a backyard or something, a place that is open, but it's part of the house. Abu Bakr took his fana to be a masalla. So even though it was inside his house, but people could see it from outside. So now the same problem happened again. All of the people would gather and it would be crowds outside the house of Abu Bakr watching him pray. They were amazed by the khushua that Abu Bakr Siddiq had. And the people of Quraysh were furious. They went to Ibn Dughanna and they said, We told you we don't want him to worship publicly. So Ibn Dughanna went to Abu Bakr and spoke to him about it. Abu Bakr said, I'll give you your protection back. I don't need it. I'll be in the protection of Allah. And uh, he did give up the protection of Ibn Dughanna. A few notes on the story of Abu Bakr. Uh, number one, when he met with Abu Dughanna and Abu Dughanna asked him, How come you are migrating from your land? Abu Bakr Siddiq said in one narration, Asihu fil ard wa'abudu rabbi. Uridu an abud rabbi. But why are you traveling? He said, Where are you going? He said, I want to travel in the land in order to worship my Lord. So now Abu Bakr is leaving with no purpose but to worship Allah. To go in the land and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Seeking freedom. What will he do with that freedom? Worship Allah. They would use every resource that they have to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He wasn't traveling to do business. He was traveling. He said, I want to worship Allah. That's why I'm leaving. Second lesson. What did Ibn Dughanna know about Abu Bakr? What was the reputation that Abu Bakr had among the non-Muslims? Caring for the needy. Providing for the poor. Sponsoring the orphan. Standing up for right. That was the reputation of Abu Bakr. He wasn't known for ill manners and corrupt character. He was known for these righteous values which every person on the face of the earth who has decency would recognize their value. And this should be the personality of the Muslim wherever they are. This is what the people know of you. 
your righteousness, your uh, standing up for what is right, your charitable work. And that is what led Ibn Dughanna to say that I'm going to give you protection. He said, you are an asset for your people. We can't let you leave. We can't allow you to leave Mecca. You are a credit for them. You are a pride for your people. And this should be the reputation of every Muslim. This is what the people should know about us. Number three, his salah was a da'wah. Publicly practicing the rituals of Islam is da'wah. For the people to see hajj, for them to see our iftar in Ramadan. We used to hold in our mosque open dinners in Ramadan. We would invite the, the neighborhood to come and break fasting with us. And some of them would even fast. They're non-Muslims. They would fast. They would join in. In fact, many people seem to be enthusiastic to participate with Muslims in Ramadan. Let them do that. Let them go ahead. Let them uh, taste the value of siyam, the flavor of it. And invite them to have a iftar. Let them see the socialization that the Muslims have in Ramadan. Salah. Salat al-Taraweeh. We shouldn't hide in our enclaves, in our masajid, and close it off to the public. This is da'wah. Al-Bakr al-Siddiq would do it in public, and the people of Quraysh were furious. Because they thought that this will attract the people to Islam. Seeing Abu Bakr, seeing the khushu'ah that he had, will bring them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we should publicly do these ibadat because there is a special flavor in them and there is a uniqueness in the rituals that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prescribed on us. And that will also relate to number four. We should publicize the message. The enemies of Islam wouldn't mind if you're praying in your cubicle. That's your private uh, life. We're not going to interfere with it. But they're going to be resistant to you doing it in public. And that is what we should do. Because we want to attract the good among all people to become Muslim. And the good heart will be attracted by good things. Sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam we finished Al-Hijrah ila al-Habasha. Please proceed to the next CD.